This is The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. David is the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel Casa Grande in Casa Grande, Arizona. No, they can do good things. They can do noble things. But the problem is, is that the, in the midst of that goodness, they can never be righteous. And in the midst of all the noble works that mankind can do, they can never become holy. The very best that the world can do can't even begin to come close to the will and to the purpose and to the plan of God because they're dead in their trespasses and sin. And that's what separates them from the holiness of God. Sin separates us from God, and there's nothing we can do on our own to earn forgiveness for our sins and for the salvation of our soul. Even the best effort of any good person won't ever measure up to what God requires to be deemed right in His sight, because His ways are higher than ours, and His thoughts are not like ours. Out of His mercy and love to the people He created, He Himself provided the only way to be reconciled to Himself. Through Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross, in whom we can be made righteous before God. Now let's join Pastor David in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 1, for part one of our message entitled, An Amazing Grace. Now after the aerial view that we took of Ephesians, chapter 2, last week, well, this week we're actually going to get down on the ground and we're going to start exploring this chapter up close and personal. And I mean by personal is that I hope that you will personally put yourself again into this passage, that you'll be able to look at this passage and understand that, yes, he's writing to the church of centuries ago, but he's writing to the church of today. He's writing to you and I today, and we need to understand that, that on a very personal level, we need to take every aspect of what he's writing. Uh, There's going to be times in this study that you're going to be uncomfortable, and I understand that, and I just ask that you would allow the Holy Spirit to, again, deal with you through God's mercy and through His Word. There's going to be other times when you'll be overwhelmed, literally, by the grace and the mercy of what God has done on your behalf. And at that, I want you to allow yourself to be a vessel of thanksgiving and praise to what God has done for you. I want you to consider this morning and to leave here this morning with the understanding of how often do I pause and stop and meditate on the reality of all that God has done on my behalf, all that God has done for me and in me and through me. And many times we kind of, uh, oh, we praise Him for what He's doing right now, but what about what He's done in the past when He brought you to Himself? We all need to be continually stretched. We need to be challenged in our spiritual growth. Even as Pastor Robert said this morning, we need to know not only what we know, but we need to know why we know what we know and determine and consider the truth and the reality of our belief system. We need to be exercising our faith in a continual way. We need to allow our faith to be able to grow and not become stagnant because as our faith stops growing, if our faith becomes stagnant, then literally and truly that state of atrophy comes in to where, again, it becomes useless. Uh, when I was in about the sixth grade, I, I got hit by a car. Now, 
the reason I got hit by a car is because I disobeyed my mama. Now, I'm not going to go into details because she's here this morning, but she knows all the details, believe me. We've had many discussions about that. Uh, I, I actually, in, in disobedience to my mama, I uh, crossed a street not too unlike uh, Pinal or, or Florence uh, Boulevard out here. And in crossing that street, I was hit by a car, and it broke uh, the uh, the right femur, the upper portion of my right leg, a, a compound fracture. I was in a, a body cast literally for three months, all the way up to my ribs, down to my toe. Well, at the end of those three months, they cut that cast off, and lo and behold, below me, I had this one leg that was the most hideous-looking limb a creature could ever have, and it was the most useless limb that a creature could have. I mean, it couldn't do anything. It didn't have strength to do anything. I literally had to re-strengthen it through exercise and physical therapy. I had to literally almost learn to, to walk again. Well, in the same way, a believer whose faith isn't stretched, whose faith isn't being used, whose faith isn't growing, it can easily come into that same kind of a condition. Nearly useless and requiring to be re-strengthened and literally having to relearn to walk in faith again. It's interesting to note that the church of Ephesus that we're looking at in this study is the first of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, where Jesus comes to them and speaks to them about the fact that you've left your first love. You need to repent. You need to go back and do those first works over again. And in essence, he was telling them to go back. You need to relearn what you've forgotten when you were first saved. So often I see believers, particularly, uh, man, when they first come to Christ and there's just such an excitement, just a fire in their life for the things of God. And they just want to follow God no matter what it takes, man. They're, They're ready to move on and move forward in the things of God and lay everything else aside. And it's interesting, and it happens to so many of us, is that as the years go, we begin to pick up more things. And we're picking up more things. And pretty soon we just got such a load with us. We can't hardly travel in the direction and in the way and in the manner that the Lord would have us. The excitement, the fire isn't there as much as it used to be. Beloved, we need to learn ourselves to return back to that first love. We need to learn again to walk in faith. If your faith is atrophied, if it's come to that point of just absolute uselessness, You need to again return to that first love, allowing your faith to be stretched, trusting the Lord in those areas in your life. But for now, let's let's look here at Ephesians. Chapter 2, Paul reminds them of their condition before they came to Christ. We're looking at chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you he made alive. You who are dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others." Well, before we can correctly really come in and and interpret and apply this passage to our lives, I need to draw your attention to that little phrase right at the beginning of verse 1. He made alive. 
Well, in, the truth is, is that in the Greek, that phrase isn't there. Okay, That was added by the translators. It is in the passage down in verse 5. The, the reference is there when we read in verse 5, even when you were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together. So we know that that's what Paul had on his mind. But I believe that the, the translators did a great disservice in trying to help us understand the passage by putting he made alive at the very beginning. Because for these first three verses, Paul is speaking very adamantly, very directly of the fact that we were dead. We were dead, and this is how dead we were, and this is why we were dead. So I want you to, if you would, disregard those three little words for a moment, if you would, that he made alive. Because I want you to consider the deadness of our lives outside of Christ long before we get to the hope and the reality of the fact that he made us alive. So, we know who the you is that he speaks of there in verse 1. We spoke of that last week. You is the church of Ephesus and the church today. And remember last week, I informed you very correctly in the English, you is you. You is you. Okay, that is who the you is. And just again, uh, just as it's been through the church all through the ages since Paul penned this letter, it's for every believer. And right at the first verse, Paul begins to describe to the church of Ephesus and thus to us also our position before we were in Christ. Where we were in, in our spiritual lives. He goes into detail describing our past life and what influenced our lives. Then in the very first verse of the passage, Paul declares that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. The very first thing you and I need to realize about our past condition and the condition of all mankind outside of faith in Christ is that we were Dead. We were dead. The word translated here as dead is necros. We get the, the word necromancy from it, the, the idea of communicating with the dead. Here in verse 1, when Paul says that we were dead, he uses the very same word that he uses up in chapter 1 in verse 20 when he speaks about how Christ was dead. Christ was physically dead. He was completely and totally dead. He was, as we spoke about a few weeks ago, he was Roman certified dead. And when the Romans certified that you were dead, you were no doubt dead. Okay? So do you get the picture? The Romans didn't let people off the cross unless they were totally and completely dead. However, in the context of what we're looking at here, Paul speaks of our being physically dead, a condition that made us literally deprived of any life that would allow us to be able to recognize or to honor or to be devoted to God in, in any way. In that condition, we were consumed by our trespasses and sins. We were incapable of doing any right. And when Paul declares that we were dead, he's not just saying that we were non-existent. We simply existed in a state of separation, spiritual separation from God and everything that's holy, condition of our soul, dead. And the reason we were dead, again, because of our trespasses, because of our sins. Our death 
linked us as it was to those trespasses and sins, and it became to us the controlling factor of our life. And it controlled in our lives our moral standards. It controlled in our lives our social logic. It controlled our emotions. It controlled our will. All of these factors were active in our lives. We had some sort of standard. We had a logic. We had emotions. We had will. But they were dead to the things of God. The world outside of Christ. Let me, let me be really clear here. The world outside of Christ actually is able to find some sort of a moral standard. Some sort of a social logic. The world can, and, and I understand that the world does at time, actually do good things. And I think it's totally unfair for us as believers say that the world cannot do any good things. No, they can do good things. They can do noble things. But the problem is, is that the, in the midst of that goodness, they can never be righteous. And in the midst of all the noble works that mankind can do, they can never become holy. The very best that the world can do can't even begin to come close to the will and to the purpose and to the plan of God because they're dead in their trespasses and sin. And that's what separates them from the holiness of God. And you need to understand, church, that the, the nicest, the best, the goodest of the good outside of Christ is still destined for a Christless eternity. The word that's used here that Paul uses for trespasses comes from the Greek word paraptoma. And paraptoma comes from a root word that carries with it the, the meaning of to fall beside a person or a thing, to, to slip, or hence to deviate from the right path, to turn aside, to, to wander. It has a contextual meaning for us here that it's, it's a lapse or, or a deviation from truth and righteousness. That truth and righteousness are here, but our trespasses cause us to deviate from that. It's a misdeed is another way of putting it. In essence, if you're trespassing, you've deviated from the right path, you're walking on the wrong path. And isn't that pretty much how we use that word trespassing? We see a sign that says, no trespassing. And we understand, hey, we shouldn't go into that area. We shouldn't take that path. That's, that's not where we belong. And if somehow by, by accident or, or even a failure to watch for the warning signs, we find ourselves walking on that path, nonetheless, we're still trespassing. There's, there's no excuse that we can use. This fact is, is we are trespassing when we go on that where the signs have been clearly displayed for us. God has shown himself in the book of Romans, declares the fact that God has made himself known to all of mankind, no matter where they're at. God has revealed himself through his nature and through his creation. And yet man refuses to watch or to listen or to read the signs. We find themselves walking again away from the truth. 
There's another Greek word that deals with the purposeful act of defiance, where I know that there's a God, but I've determined to walk elsewhere. And again, I've purposefully chosen to walk on the path that says no trespassing. And again, knowing that it's there, you simply uh, go against, you transgress the law. That word parabasis. It is, I know that it's there, and I choose to walk elsewhere. In Vine's dictionary, it describes paratoma in a, in a little clearer way for us. It says that it is to deviate from righteousness and truth, to deviate from the will of God. So rather it be accidental, or rather it be purposeful, it's clearly disobedience in any form. Yet that's only a portion of the charge that's been placed against us. Not only our trespasses, but also Paul speaks of our sins. And the word Paul uses here for sins is rendered again from a word that's used throughout the New Testament and in the Greek version of the Old Testament. Heramatano. Most translated as to miss the mark. And it's the idea that was used with Greek classical literature of a, of a Greek spearman throwing a spear and missing the target. It's that kind of an idea. But in the context of both the New Testament as well as in the Old Testament, it most closely aligns with that fact of, again, a bad action or an evil deed. So it's not just that, oh, I tried to hit the mark. No, sins is more along the line of an actual bad thing that we've done an evil thing that we've conjured in our mind to go ahead and do. Many times sin is also listed on those things that are both commission and omission, the things that I do, and sometimes it's the things that I ought to do that I don't do, and still that becomes sin. The Word tells us that to do right and not to do it, that itself is sin. So sin can come both by those things that we, we've done as well as the things that we've not done. Sin also comes to us through thoughts and feelings as well as speech and action. Clearly, it's, it's a departure from morality. It's a departure from, from spiritual reasoning. That's why Jesus so clearly taught us that to hate my brother is to commit murder. That's how it is. That's how important it is to the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives, of what we believe, what we think, what we feel. Jesus confirms a presence of sin, even in the wickedness of our thoughts. And when we fail to forgive someone, when we're eaten up by greed or by jealousy or by lust in our lives, even if it remains internal, it impacts the spiritual, and therefore it is sin. When Paul goes on to verse 2, Explained that this was our past life. A life where we once walked. He said in verse 2, In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Now just for clarity's sake, to help you understand, the prince of the power of the air is Satan. Okay, We understand that and we know that. He is the one who continues to work in the sons of disobedience. And again, to 
further clarify, and I believe that uh, uh, Brian Perkins did a good job on this on Wednesday night when he spoke of the fact that many times it's not Satan that's directly working in your life. It may be one of the demonic forces that's working in your life, but uh, more often than not, Satan, Satan is a limited uh, creature. He is, he is not uh, omnipresent. He cannot be everywhere at every time. But believe me, his influence is in so many lives. Paul is very clear about the truth of our past. He doesn't hold anything back here. He declares that before we came to Christ, we were walking according to the way of the world. We were walking according to the good pleasure of Satan himself. The hard thing for most people to understand, including a lot of Christians, is the fact that there's only two roads that you and I travel. There's only two choices that we have in life. You either walk in the high calling of the glory of the Lord Jesus according to the kingdom of God in your life, or you walk according to the pleasure of Satan and of the world. Beloved, there's no other choices. And and some people say, well, no, I'm, I'm not serving Satan. I'm just doing what I want to do. There is a hook in your jaw that's been placed there by Satan, and he's dragging you around. You might say, well, that's what I want to do. No, that's what Satan is drawing you to do. The Word is very clear about that. There's not a spiritual or a moral vacuum in all of creation. It's either the things of Christ or it's the things of the enemy of Satan himself. As believers, God continues to call us, even after we become Christians, after we've received Christ and we know redemption in our lives, God continues to call us. He challenges us in our lives to walk in obedience, knowing who we serve. And we need to be found walking according to the call of Christ, honoring the kingdom of God in our life in every aspect. In the Old Testament, as the children of Israel had left Egypt and they did their wandering in the desert for the 40 years, and then they finally started moving into the Promised Land, and they fought so many battles as they came in to claim the territory within the Promised Land, and Joshua leading them. Now at the end of Joshua's life, as they've come into that Promised Land, Joshua understands who these people are. He's dealt with them for so many years. And so at the end of Joshua's life, he challenges them in Joshua 24:15, And he says, now if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Rather it be the gods which our fathers served, which are on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose lands you now dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In essence, what Joshua was saying was, if you bring it into the context of today, church, you need to decide who you're going to serve. If you're going to serve your flesh, and if you're going to serve the world, then go. Serve the flesh and serve the world. If it seems evil in your sight to serve God, then make that determination. God has no fence sitters. We need to be sold out to him. That's why Jesus was so adamant. He says, you know what, if, if, you, if you take up the plow and you keep looking back, you're not worthy of my kingdom. There needs to be a determination in our hearts that I will follow Christ 
Well, that doesn't mean we don't make mistakes because we do. I believe as long as this carcass that we carry around is here, we're going we're to stumble. But, beloved, where is the intent and where is the direction? Where is the purpose? Where is the love? Where is the hope of your heart? Years later, prophet Elijah, desiring to see the people of Israel come back to God and to the worship of the one true God, Jehovah, Remember, he went to do battle with the 450 prophets of Baal there on Mount Carmel. And he called all the people of Israel to him there. And the people, for the most part, they weren't sure what they were going to do. They had been worshiping Baal and these pagan and these foreign gods for so long. And now Elijah comes and he's going to draw the line in the sand, in essence. In 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21, Elijah calls the people to himself there on Mount Carmel. And he asks them, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow Him. But if Baal, well then follow Him. It's interesting. There was no great revival that, spoke, that broke out right there. As a matter of fact, the response is that the people answered him not a word. Not a word. It seems that more and more people are getting caught up in a works-based expression of their faith. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. This is the book Pastor David is currently teaching through, Ephesians. You can get a free copy of today's teaching at our website. Simply log on to www.theopenword.com. That's theopenword.com. Although the open word is a huge blessing, we pray that it's not your only source for the teaching of the Word of God. It's our hope that you're attending a church that teaches God's Word from beginning to end. If not, we'd like to invite you to join us at Calvary Chapel of Casa Grande for worship on Saturday evenings, Sunday mornings, or Wednesday evenings. For service times, driving directions, and more information, log on to theopenword.com and follow the link to the church website. Finally, we want to encourage you to follow us on Twitter, The Open Word Radio, or log on to theopenword.com and follow the link right there on the homepage. Well, that's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to The Open Word with David Landry. Please join us next time as Pastor David continues teaching verse by verse through the book of Ephesians. That's next time on The Open Word.